tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, Miriam's Memory, Ghost Blimp, Fugitive Fireman, and Russian Roulette. co-host crystal and i'm your other co-host robert this is reenacted an unsolved mysteries podcast a title i'm more and more confident in saying since the show's free on youtube uh, like legitimately yeah it's on there yeah. I and mean, i remember early days i was very worried about legal things <laughs> Do you remember how stressed I was about like I don't want to be sued for libel? I feel like I was <laughs> stressed out. I feel, and then like t- two episodes in, I was just like, "That guy did it. He killed her." You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, it does. I do recall distinctly. Um, yeah, definitely in the very first few episodes, we were we were fa- throwing disclaimers and qual qualifiers and all sorts of you know qualifying statements like well you know obviously we don't know if this person's innocent or guilty but i mean just yeah. looking at what they've presented it does kind of seem to sh- uh, suggest uh, and, yeah yeah we were really hedging <laughs> right in the beginning because i was worried i was so worried about getting sued <laughs> As it turned out, our our main worry uh, worry should have just been that uh, any person we were talking about would give us one, one star review on right. iTunes. Right. I was also really worried because of another uh, Unsolved Mysteries podcast. I mean, officially, we're the only Unsolved Mysteries podcast that exists. But there was another one that had got like a cease and desist letter from FilmRise. Mm-hmm about using um, some graphics and stuff. And I, you know, no one has ever come after us for what I have very sloppily for our podcast, uh, you know, the header image, very sloppily just pasted some pink letters over the original Unsolved Mysteries graphic. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been uh, meaning no. to talk to you about that graphic. Like, yeah, I, I was thinking... <laughs> Do we need a new one? Is it time well, to revisit? Well, we we might. I mean, it's just uh, this yeah. isn't this isn't something I have a definitive thought on. But you know, I was kind of thinking yeah. like because because Rump is a is the acronym for our our show. Uh, yeah, reenact that stands for reenacted and unsolved mysteries podcast. And, Rump. Yep, yeah, and we we yeah, we, but that's very close to a former president, <laughs> which is what I don't like about it. Oh, because I don't want people like you know typing in rump when they're looking for the other guy and their browser oh because yeah they're like wait this this isn't a politics podcast one star yeah yeah Uh, exactly and then they're like why are they why are these two not trying to make america great again they're just talking about pie and video stores you know and, and well, in that situation, uh, this would, would this would be like many other people who apparently have come across our podcast. But mm-hmm. yeah, well, I that that might be alleviated if, like, you know, uh, the the image for the podcast. Uh, I was thinking, uh-huh. since Rump uh, refers to uh-huh. um, someone's behind, yeah, sometimes it does, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, or or yeah. Um, we could have a picture of a, a, a very attractive person's uh, um, behind, you know, in, in, while wearing pants, mm-hmm. not not naked. Yeah, 
Pants on. And <laughs> All right. Tasteful. Okay. <laughs> yes. Now, granted, that will also lead probably to a lot of people <laughs> listening into the podcast under the mm-hmm. mistake, mistaken belief that its subject matter is something else entirely. But, <laughs> yeah. I, but I have to admit, the idea amuses me immensely. <laughs> well, you know, uh, having crossed this milestone, I'm open to revisiting the graphics department of uh, our podcast uh and maybe i can talk to a friend of the podcast uh the card daddy himself bill tilly see what see if he's interested in maybe taking a pass at that oh, interesting hey bill if you're listening got your card thanks man appreciated that sent you a card a nice oh, little card nice. from bill tilly in the Aww. mail after you know congratulating on my recent nuptials that's um, mighty so cool thank you, bill. yeah it was it was fucking cool bill <laughs> He's a mensch. So I don't know. Maybe uh, I'll, I'll take him up on his offer he made years ago to help us out with some graphics mm, so. or merch. He, he, had, he had offered also to help with merch. And then we just didn't didn't ever uh, make any merch because I don't think that's the thing people want. Maybe they do. I don't know. Hit us up. Guys, do you want merch? Do you need like a T-shirt or something? I feel like if we have from us? A, an attractive person's <laughs> rear end on the merch, yeah. it might make it more interesting. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know why uh, I'm obsessed with this idea right right now. Maybe maybe it will pass in I a few episodes. Maybe for... it was the th- only three hours of sleep you you got oh. before recording. Yeah, and it's put you in a really silly. I don't know, but I think it's worth revisiting. Um, Robbie, I also wanted to talk to the people. I I don't know if they've been keeping track at this point. I was unemployed for a bit of my own uh, of my own choice, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I recently got another job. <laughs> working now yes which is is great except it makes it a little more difficult for us to record because we are on opposite days off we are on opposite work schedules so trying to find time to uh, plug in a recording sesh is getting getting a little more um, challenging but we're doing it mm-hmm. and uh the job that i got is i am uh, doing working a little closer to one of my passions which is cooking and food and uh, I uh, was luckily given the chance to do that. I'm doing administrative work for a, a small boutique catering company here in L.A. Uh, so far, it's been super great. Um, however, or I shouldn't say however, I just want to add that we have a lot of, mm, let's say, celebrities. Okay. Uh, that need food for events. And um, we happily provide that. And, uh, you know... However, some this week we got sort of a strange request, and I thought I would share it with the people. All right. <laughs> uh, because it's proving to be a pretty good party story so far. <laughs> so um, so we had a an actor, a female actor, who I don't want to say any names. Um, and I will only say that she was on a very popular uh, 1990s sitcom. Mm, okay. Um. So that doesn't really narrow it down, um, but uh, you know, <laughs> she was having a gathering at her home, and she had wanted us to. And if she's listening right now and she recognizes herself, um, weird. Why are you listening to <laughs> that, our podcast? Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, but also it's very strange. Um, and uh, she called and she wanted to do like a. Uh, you know, chili and cornbread, kind of like warm comfort food oh, for this, yeah. you know, gathering. 
that she was happening. So I'm we're like, oh yeah, that sounds great. We can do that totally. But then it became this thing of like, well, she wanted the chili to be vegetarian and then she wanted to add a bunch of vegetables to the chili. And, you know, for anyone who's not really familiar with chili, chili is, and depending on where you live in the United States, um, you might have some very strong opinions about this, but it's typically some sort of spicy red to brown concoction of beans and ground meat. And, um, you know, if you're from Texas, you would probably say it's only ground meat. There's no beans and chili. And that's fine. You can have that opinion. Uh, uh, usually it includes beans, though. And um, uh, so she decided that for some reason her chili not only should not have meat, but it should have impossible meat. Okay, that's fine. Do your thing, girl. Like, yeah, let's get that. Let's get that vegetarian chili going. Like, I'm down with that. But then she wanted us to add like broccoli and carrots and shit. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, okay, but it gets weirder because by the end of the week, you know, she had decided that, you know, she wanted gluten-free cornbread. And that's just, that's what my grandfather used to make. And it was called corn pone and it was hard as rocks and he was from Texas and he loved it. But you don't want to eat that shit. You need a little, you need a little flour Hmm. in the cornbread. You need to lighten that shit up. So we, you know, we said, you know, we can't, we don't have a good recipe. We don't want to give you shitty gluten-free cornbread. We just can't make that for you. We don't have a good recipe for it. Yeah. And I think that's fair. Like, we're not going to try and test out a new recipe and nail it just for an order like this, right? So, um, and then she decided she wanted, like, this special kind of, like, goat cheddar cheese to go on it. And again, like, you know, we have limited suppliers and, she, you know, she had a source on that. She's, you know, she was more than welcome to put the cheese on it herself, whatever. So we went from having this like meal we were going to drop off her of like salad and this, you know, vegetarian chili and this cornbread and all the toppings to go on it to eventually by the end of the week, the order was down to just nine quarts of shitty chili. <laughs> and the head chef comes into our little office from the kitchen and he's like, I don't want to make this. This sounds terrible. <laughs> he doesn't want his name associated with the travesty no, that will. He doesn't want to, He just was like he was crestfallen. He's like, I don't want to make this food. This sounds bad. Like I was on board for the impossible meat because like I'm vegetarian. Like impossible meat's pretty good. Like I've had some burgers that were very convincing. Um, but, uh, you know, adding the broccoli, the what are you doing? That's a stew. You wanted a stew. You wanted a vegetarian stew, yeah. not chili. You can't call it chili anymore. Anyway, so that's it for this very, well, I won't, you know, this actress who is still famous, but less so now we ended up just dropping off nine quarts of chili and no, no toppings <laughs> and no cornbread, just nine quarts of shitty. Chili. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Um, it seems, uh, I, I have to say if I was the guest at whatever social function this, mm -hmm. this actress was having, I would, uh -huh. I would, I guess I would just be at the, the table where the, you know, the, the chilies, uh, 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 the, the sort of chili like substances. And I would just be like, mm -hmm. is this it? It's not even like some, that was it. Not yeah. even some cornbread? Well, I don't know if she decided to go try and bake her own or whatever, but... Yeah. Uh, so, uh, anyway, hey, should we talk about an episode of Unsolved Mysteries? Very specifically, Season 5, Episode... What is this, 26? Uh, 24? Yeah, 24. 
<laughs> That's what I meant. Getting a little ahead of, ahead of ourselves. I'm inventing an episode that doesn't exist. <laughs> there was no episode 26. Well, that that that's quite appropriate uh, if if we're on the topic of inventing things things that don't exist. Yeah, I I had a false memory just now. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. We're going to go back to 1945. Mm-hmm. And uh this is a lost love segment yes yeah. it is a lost love segment and we're gonna ch- we're gonna talk about a woman named um uh miriam parton now listen M- miriam is a middle-aged woman at this point and she is freaking convinced that from the age of three years old to five years old she was in foster care yeah why does miriam think that listen Miriam started seeing a psychologist and uh, in the early 80s and um, she started having these random memories that were very upsetting to her. Uh, like she describes being like kind of like balled up at some point having these these upsetting uh, memories just resurface, mm-hmm. you know, and one of the memories that uh, Miriam was recalling is that. Um, she, she was seeing this man being wrapped around his face with cloth, like he was being like wrapped like a mummy. When they're recreating that in the segment, it's actually kind of legitimately terrifying. For sure, yeah. yeah. And then that unlocking of that memory, whatever that memory was, uh, led to her um having a, another memory about her father attacking her, and then later being subdued by by policemen. This segment is kind of, it goes on for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Too long, some might say. Me, I will say that. Uh, this was a very long episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I don't really know why they chose to commit so much time and painstaking detail to Miriam's Miriam's memories here. Yeah. You know, because Unsolved Mysteries spends a lot of time in this segment kind of making the case with two different psychologists about why what Miriam is saying is true. And I'm like, if you have to argue for it that hard, you know? Yeah. Because in other lost love segments, I mean, we've had other lost love segments where people are looking for their foster parents from before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you can think of one from season one. In fact, I don't know if you remember that way back, but she, it was the woman, she had like a, a really big perm. And she wanted to find, like, she'd been horribly abused, and she had these really loving foster parents, and then they were reunited at the end of the segment. Do you remember that? You use the term really big perm, and I feel like I have seen yeah, that segment. Yeah, that doesn't really narrow it yeah. down, does it? <laughs> okay, but anyway, we did season one, that was, that was definitely a thing that happened. And so, you know, this is not unprecedented in Unsolved Mysteries, but Unsolved Mysteries spends a lot of time with these psychologists... Uh, as talking heads saying like they believe that Miriam was abused and that she had, you know, these memories that had been suppressed and they talk about like her conscious memories and unconscious memories. And I, I, you know, the red flags for me, you know, at first I was like, doth, you doth protest too much on mysteries. <laughs> like, you didn't need to bring in all this evidence. You could just said, Miriam remembered she had a foster family. She's trying to reconnect with them. Okay. I don't know why all this other stuff was going on. I, I would have probably been more inclined to believe it if they, if we didn't get all, the, you know, as you say, all the, right. All this urging that yeah. like, this is true. This is, this is real. It's real. Yeah. 
and and I also want to like take a little aside here because um, it isn't until like way late in the segment that Robert Stack comes on to acknowledge that some people have said that Miriam is having false memory syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there has there has been a ton of I mean, memory is such a tricky thing, right? And we've talked about it before on the show um, a lot. You know, especially with eyewitness accounts of things too. Um, you know, like everyone's, everyone's in a Rashomon situation all of the time with memory. Like that's how it's just, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And, um, keeping that in mind though, uh, I'm wondering, you know, are these psychologists, (laughs) not every doctor is good. And while I'm a huge proponent of going to therapy and I've done years of therapy myself, um, there are a lot of bad therapists out there. It's a lot of bad psychologists out there that are just making people's lives more miserable one hour at a time. Uh. And I'm wondering if this was a situation where, you know, the psychologist was pushing her to remember something that just maybe wasn't there, you know? (laughs) Um, I have to. And- I have to admit that's kind of what came to my mind when I first started watching this segment. It was like the first yeah. thing was like, yeah, this this guy's planning these, creating these memories in this in this woman's head. I guess maybe she she yeah. should just be lucky that he he didn't he didn't go down the route of like making her think that she was abducted by aliens. Yeah, I I mean, this is the thing that's interesting too is that Miriam's own admission is that. The memories of her father, the, the ones that she could easily recall, were all very happy memories. Right. She didn't. She didn't. She remembers him being kind of off sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, which kind of brings us to the reenactment. <laughs> God. One of the reenactments that we get in this segment. Now, as reenactments go, I think this is a real banger, and it and it will be forever referred to as the coconut incident. <laughs> <laughs> so so let me set the scene here's here's what happens is miriam is going to tell us or we're going to be shown by unsolved mysteries about this memory that miriam has recovered about her father and so we go back to 1945 and this is uh this is a jewish household and we know this you saw the menorah because the we saw the menorah. I was going to ask you if you you spotted that. No, the menorah was prominent. Yeah, the menorah was prominent. And uh, listen, I'm 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 not Jewish. I'm not. <laughs> I won't even pretend to be, and I won't even pretend to be an expert about that. I just feel like a menorah is something that goes up on a shelf, and it's brought out during the holiday period, during you know Hanukkah mm-hmm. specifically. It's not just something that's just like on the coffee table all the time <laughs> in the living room. You know what I mean? So it felt like it was kind of like the prop person for Unsolved Mysteries was like, how do we demonstrate that this is a Jewish household? And then they just like put a menorah in. <laughs> right. In the most conspicuous spot. Yeah. I also want to mention that Judaism it never comes up in this segment. Not <laughs> no. once. Is it referred to? Is it important? It's not It's not a feature of this segment. Yeah. At all, yeah, you know, it, it, other than the menorah, which is prominent, right? You know, and the thing is, is like we've seen plenty of segments in the past where, like, you know, uh, they'll have a a house uh, household depiction, and there'll be a cross on the wall, um, right? But it's not like the the family being a Christian isn't uh, a particular uh, isn't mentioned or a relevant part of the the segment, 
Yeah. And I feel like yeah. it'd be it'd be one thing if unsolved mis- if the menorah was as you said up on a mantelpiece or a shelf somewhere or, or whatnot. But that it was just sort of like plucked down right on the, the coffee table. Yeah, it was just it was it was very conspicuous. Yeah. And it's like, well, unless unless it's that time of year when the menorah comes off the shelf, you know, hmm. why, I don't think people are just sitting around with a menorah on their coffee. Table. I don't like, hey, tweeted us. Maybe I'm wrong, yeah. here, dude. But like, I don't feel like that's it's like having a Christmas tree out all year. Sure. There's some people who are just lazy and don't put their shit away. Absolutely. But just like having that telegraphed, that Judaism telegraphed in the segment when it really has nothing to do with anything is very strange. Yeah. Um, so that is, so this is how we arrive at the coconut incident is we pull back from the menorah and Miriam's mother and father are arguing and she is a small child in this scene. And, um, you know, Miriam's mother is trying to get her to eat something. And Miriam says, I, I want a coconut. Also signifying that we know this is in Florida when this is happening <laughs> is because there is a large um, unhusked coconut, fresh coconut on their dining room table. And not even the brown. They haven't even cut it down to the brown nut part yet. It's just a, the whole thing. And then Miriam's father says to the mother, you know, if she wants a coconut, we'll, let, we'll give her the coconut. And then the dad takes a little steak knife and the mom's like, oh, you're not going to get a coconut open with that, which is legitimate. He was not going to get the coconut open with that. <laughs> he he's like in the reenactment, he strains the, the reenactor yeah. strains as he's trying to shove that knife into the, in the, the coconut. Yeah. I mean, anyone that knows anything knows you need something like machete shaped. Have you ever tried to get into, into a coconut? I, uh, I haven't. I'm telling you, this is a job for a machete. <laughs> like, not even a large chef's knife. You're going to be struggling. Okay. With a coconut. Well, I like, okay. I like in the reenactment, there's a moment where the, the guy playing the father looks up at, at his daughter and gives this, like, this awkward smile. And I feel like it's yeah. the exact same sort of smile I would give if I was trying to do something and was just horribly failing at it while someone is yeah. watching me waiting and be like, oh, <laughs> it's so be to, he'll be done soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the mom leaves the room at this point. I don't know if she leaves the house or the room, but she leaves the scene. And uh, the dad is stabbing away <laughs> at this unhusked coconut. And then suddenly he just like a switch flips and he... Lobs the coconut at some ceramics that were on a shelf, breaks everything. Yeah, screaming about the goddamn coconut, and uh, he he picks up Miriam, and Miriam, you know, he starts shaking her, and and Miriam kicks him hard enough enough that he drops her, th- throws her or something, and then Miriam recalls uh, being behind a chair, hiding from him. And that he is maniacally going around the house saying, here, kitty, kitty, here, doggy, doggy, calling for her, but thinking that she's a cat or a dog. And then at some point just starts stabbing a upholstered chair. (laughs) He goes to town on it, too. He goes to town on it. And then the cops run in. And they they subdue him. And then some hospital orderlies and white coats come in, you know, real white jacket situation. You know what I Mm -hmm. mean? And they subdue him. And it's at that point, Miriam believes that she was put into foster care. 
Yeah. Uh, so Miriam has some other memories about being with uh, an Irish couple called Mike and Pat, <laughs> which is very funny to me because my 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 mom's name is Patricia and her brother's name is Mike. <laughs> because 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 we too are a good Irish family. <laughs> Oh yeah, so, my uncle Mike and my my mother Pat. Um, no, so it's it's just a weird coincidence. Yes. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> their last name is McGuire because, of course, it is. I I and, love the um, framing device of of her remember having recalling all these memories where they have someone playing adult, um, you know, her as an adult in the bathroom in the therapy. Yeah, yeah. in the bathroom in the therapy. It's weird. Yeah. Right? Yes, she's 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 holding like a small child's like doll, and she's just like mm-hmm. she's seated and rocking in the bathroom as if she were, uh, uh, you know, had had meant had regressed to being a child again. It's very right. strange. Yeah, but it's it's also strange the amount of budget that Unsolved Mysteries threw at this particular segment. <laughs> it is having to hire both adult and child Miriam reenactors. Yeah. So uh, Miriam recalls being with this this Irish family. The, the Irishness was played up a lot. The Judaism never comes up. The Irishness with Pat and Mike comes up quite a bit, I feel like. Yes. And, um, you know, uh, Miriam re- recalls uh, Pat singing her Irish lo- lullabies, you know. Yeah, it's like Trula, Tuolu. My grandmother used to sing it to me. Again, good Irish family. Oh, really? Um, also. Yeah, yeah, she used to sing that uh, to me to go to sleep. Aww. It's an Irish lullaby. That's literally what it's called. It's like Tura an Irish lullaby. That's an Irish You sing this you sing the words an Irish lullaby in the song. Oh, I as far as I know, I'm Almost entirely <laughs> Anglo-Saxon, so I... Oh, well, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, way to brag. Well, some of us... Uh, yeah, anyway, so... <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter because it probably never happened. Uh, Miriam also remembers being in court and being... Uh, given back to her biological parents. Um, and she remembers crying in the courtroom and being very sad about having to say goodbye to mommy, Pat and daddy, Mike. So, uh, yeah. So this is what Miriam thinks happens. And again, we get all the psychologists back up the saying, this is real. This happened to her. I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks guys. Um, and so she thinks she was with Pat and Mike McGuire between 1945 and 1946. And she has already petitioned, uh, the state of Florida for foster records, State of Florida told Unsolved Mysteries that it was not uncommon just in that post-World War II period to not have records of, you know, foster children. I, th- I think it's probably just because too many kids were getting moved around. Yes. Uh, post-war, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so, I, you know, I believe the state of Florida when they say, hey, you know, we, we just don't have good records from that time. Um, you know, the other thing is Miriam had asked her mother, who was apparently still alive uh, in the 80s at least, about her father and and her mother conceded that her father had had some mental illness issues but uh, she had never been in Miriam had never been put in foster care Hmm. so um yeah so the update is strange we do get an update but it's weird it's a weird update with the segment and 
Someone had called the telecenter, the Unsolved Mysteries hotline, to say that Pat and Mike McGuire had actually existed and that they knew them. And uh, this viewer sent in a picture, a photograph of Pat McGuire. She, the viewer did not know where Pat or Mike were in the present day. They had lost touch, but they also recalled that immediately following World War II that the couple had taken in a small child for a period of time. Hmm. Um, so, you know, who's to say? It could be just someone knew a Pat and Mike and... I would, can I reiterate how common the names Pat and Mike are in Irish families? That Pat and Mike McGuire could be a lot of people. <laughs> right. So. And at least some of them must have taken in a kid briefly for a period of time after World War II. Um, could be an entirely different per- yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. This is like probably the truth is somewhere in the middle, you know, here. Like um, I just I just having all the experts come on and making this such a long segment and unsolved mysteries feels like they were really trying to like convince us of something instead of it just being like, you know, Miriam recalled she'd been in foster care. We could have started there. You know, yeah, there's probably some producers like, uh, I don't know if we put this segment on just as is, it's going to seem like we're like showing just some like lunatic woman uh making up stories i i guess but we've done but they've done it before oh yeah where they're just like they've reunited kids with their foster parents so that's the that's the part i don't get it's like why did we need to to try and prove all this memory stuff you know it was very strange yeah and then the update was weird i don't know this was a this was a weird segment Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's my review. That was, it was odd. Robbie, listen, so, but we have even a stranger segment. Yes. That follows this. An exciting, truly exciting mystery, I thought. This is probably the, uh, the highlight of the episode. And it's, it's been, um, been in a segment I've been familiar with for quite some time. Mm. We're going back to World War II. So this is the this is around the same time as the Miriam thing, yeah. Right, right. Uh, it, it's funny. Like there's all this mention of World War II in the first segment, and I was like, I, I kept trying to like come up with scenarios about the <laughs> connecting the two. Like, wouldn't it have been? It would have been really fun if like Miriam's memory was not of being like spending a couple of years with this uh, Irish uh, couple. But instead, spending two years with like a couple of uh, uh, pilots who fly a blimp, wouldn't that have been fun? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened to them. <laughs> so Robbie, gonna... have you ever have you ever been in a blimp? Uh, no, I haven't. Have you? No, I mean, I feel like I exist as a blimp most of the time, oh. but. Uh... No, I have, I've never, I've, uh, I'm curious, you know, if somebody was like, Hey, do you want to go up in that Goodyear blimp? I'd be like, yeah, let's, let's well, do that. You know, it's, uh, Let me get up ever there. since I, I found out about your interest in aviation, which was something I really, mm-hmm. I, I guess I really wasn't super cognizant of before. 
I don't talk about it a lot. Like, I don't talk about this podcast. Well, yeah, that's probably a good thing, because if you had, <laughs> I probably would have, like, you would have, like, for, for Christmas, you would have started getting, like, you know, it was like, you, you opened up your things, like, why did, why, why did Robbie send me a bunch of VHS tapes of Wings of the Lufafa? <laughs> <laughs> Crystal likes planes. <laughs> well, I, you know, I love that you send me, like, they they're so thoughtful your presence truly oh, thank um, you. every time i i go wow he he really he really thought about this before <laughs> he said it, you know yeah i keep i keep all that stuff man i love it oh good i mean but also don't like send me anything else but i love it <laughs> <laughs> but i but i have kept everything so far okay so. um but yes uh Anyway, to get back to our segment, <laughs> so yes. th- this segment takes place during World War II. It's a very interesting uh, sort of background because uh, this is in uh, 1942, so the uh, the war is mm-hmm. still very much in the balance, and yeah, it dis- like it discusses a fleet of blimps that were utilized by the U.S. military to do coastal patrol. Hell yeah for the yeah. west coast yeah um can i say something right now go ahead this is this segment was the first and i grew up in the san francisco bay area okay okay i i fancied myself a california expert over here mm-hmm. this was the first i had ever heard of the Farallon islands in my life oh really yes i don't know i don't know why i didn't know about it um i just didn't I would. I just assume they're just you know some islands that Californians would know about, but I mean most most people don't even know about the Channel Islands, and they're much larger <laughs> off the coast of California. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I didn't I didn't know these existed. I mean, I have to go there now. I'm fascinated. Um, what are they about twenty miles off the coast of like San Francisco? Right? Uh, judging from uh, extrapolating from this map that Unsolved Mysteries provided, <laughs> that's what my mm. my conjecture would be. Yes. So I mean, strategically, it makes a lot of sense to have a military presence out there, right? Because it's mm-hmm. if any, because the whole reason the blimps are out there is to spot subs. Yes. That was the point, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so if you have a strategic position that's 20 miles outside of san francisco because there's the presidio in san francisco and treasure island all that have been a major you know point reyes as well have been major uh military installations since even before the world wars in california um just because they're strategic positions to move a lot of ships around on the west coast of the United States, but uh, yeah, the Farallon Islands seem seem pretty important as a outpost, making sure those subs aren't getting too close to uh, the mainland. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, you know clearly a, a natural uh, location to to include in this in this patrol uh, situation, mm. and. Um, it, it was just sort of neat uh, hearing about these blimps because that obviously they're not. Oh yeah, it was so cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously they're not something that would be taken into like a frontline combat situation, but it's just that the military is like, okay, we need to like patrol the the coast. We got these mm-hmm. blimps. Uh, we can just yeah. uh, we we can put some guys up there. And, you know, they they have they have a radio. Um, 
uh, I think they were given like a, what, a machine gun and mm-hmm. um, and a and a depth charge. So I guess uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean I'm assuming that they're more for just spotting stuff. But if they have an opportunity to try to drop one on a enemy sub, uh, might as well have you know if they have that opportunity, give them the means to do it. Um, and but. So this particular uh, patrol concerns uh, two pilots, uh, Lieutenant Ernest Cody and an Ensign Charles Adams. Why does Cody have a... We get pictures of them, by the way, in this segment. And I... Why does Ernest Cody have a Hitler staff? (laughs) I'm like, you know, it's 1942... You know what the enemy looks like. You got to shave that shit, dude. It's, he, it's not a good look. He's taking it back, Crystal. He's taking it back. Like He's taking it back? I guess maybe the real mystery here is like, how long did he have that mustache? Was that something he had had for like most of his life? And then like Hitler comes along and <laughs> yeah. Cody's like, what the hell, dude? Yeah. Like, Cody's like, why should I have to shave? That's the guy that sucks. You know? Yeah. Yeah, let's if if anything, make him shave off that mustache. Yeah. Yeah. If if I shave off mine, yeah. the Germans win. That's right. <laughs> That's yes. probably there was probably a lot of people running around with that style of mustache prior to uh old Adolf and uh he really ruined the look. He you know? He did. He did. It's um, kind of it's kind of like um how I feel about trucker hats. You know, it became such a moniker of douchebags, but like it's, you get, it's, you got to put a hat on, keep the sun out of your face. Trucker hats have good ventilation. I still think it's a cute look. The design works perfectly. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not quite the same thing as a Hitler stash, you know, just cause Ashton Kutcher wore them into the ground. It's not quite the same thing, but right. Right. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I <have> blimps. <laughs> yeah, we're not here to talk about mustaches and no, hats. No, we're here to talk. About, we're not talk, We're not here to talk fashion. We're here to talk about blimps. Yeah. So, uh, the two pilots and they're very fashionable ensembles. Um, they they get on the blimp. Their machinist doesn't join them because uh, there was some. Uh, what was the issue? There was like heavy moisture, so it was weighing the was, blimp yeah, down Yeah, the blimp a was very moist. Yeah. So they couldn't have taken off. They couldn't have with, got, gotten up in the air with three men. So, the so, they, so they had to go so down to two. Two, yeah. Yeah. And they go on their sort of standard patrol, um, but then they, uh, they uh, the base loses radio contact, and... You know, one of the people they were interviewing was like, hey, at first we thought, okay, you know, maybe there's just something going on. But then they failed to check in again and again. So after like several hours of um, silence, they they do get contacted, but not by the blimp, but, but from the San Francisco Shore Patrol. Because <laughs> the blimp crashed into a golf course. <laughs> Now I'm not familiar uh, with the Bay Area as you. This Daily City, uh-huh. this, 
Uh, have you have you been there? Is, uh... Sure. Yeah. I mean, you have to pass through if you're you're coming from San Francisco and going to the airport. You have to pass. Uh, Daly City is immediately bordering the city limits of San Francisco, so it was like a very early suburb. And uh, it, you know, Daly City's great. I I was even marveling when we got to see the wreckage of the blimp in downtown Daly City. Mm-hmm. I was marveling at the row houses and the beautiful architecture. Um, oh, it's, yeah. You know, just there was some there was just some really nice California Bay early Bay Area architecture going on. Um, with uh, you know, sort of I want to say like Medita- Mediterranean or Spanish revival style. Uh, adobe row houses real pretty stuff yeah. i mean killer architecture in daily city and, and 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 listen to this day go check it out san Francisco's being ruined but daily city's still pretty cool so um yeah so it's immediately south yes of uh yeah san francisco and basically uh when they cut when they they investigate uh both neither pilot is to be found uh, no, they're, gone. yeah, they they both had their life vests on, presumably. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and because unsolved mysteries, they throw out some 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 different ideas, and one was like yeah. maybe they actually got captured by a Japanese sub. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, the sort of um, thing that throws a wrench into that idea is the the case with the important codes the secret mm-hmm. codes that they yeah, had on the their secrets. blimp were, were yeah. still on the blimp and you would kind of yeah, think they left that would all be the blimp secrets intact <laughs> yeah you, you would think you would think that would be something that if you were you know the japanese you'd be like yeah we might want the case of codes yeah. Uh, uh but yeah the um well, yeah. So one of the conjectures is like they got captured by the Jap- uh, a Japanese sub. Um, there's also the idea that uh, there was maybe some mechanical issue, and one of them, and that one of them, like opened up the door to try to like address whatever the mechanical issue was. Mm-hmm. Started to get into trouble. The other guy tried to like help him, and they both end up falling out, which would be horrifically tragic if that were the case yeah and then (laughs) and out of nowhere unsolved mysteries was like also maybe there was a love triangle (laughs) right (laughs) it's like what is this that that ben affleck pearl harbor movie yeah that's immediately what i thought of i was like oh god um You know, I want to go back a a beat, though, and talk about the reenactment with the people seeing the blimp go across Daly City. Oh, are we going to are we going to talk about these uh, these still paintings? Yeah, that's what I guess. That was wild. Like we didn't get a reenactment. So the first person to (laughs) see the blimp coming ashore unmanned was this guy who was going out for a swim on the beach. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was still paintings. It wasn't a reenactment, mind you, but it was still paintings. I guess a reenactment of having a blimp crash would probably be too expensive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now that I think about but, that. But uh, yeah, we get some like like courtroom drawings, basically, of a guy like seeing a blimp come in from yeah, th- I- the shore and then uh, running away from the blimp. Yeah, I call I, I the call beach. the. I call the first image in the 
in this series where it's him like walking out, you know, sort of pause looking out at the ocean and the blimps uh, coming towards him. I call uh-huh. this one man versus blimp. Uh huh. Yeah. And and then there's the um, there's the the next image in the series where the blimp is much closer and the guy's sort of he's um, uh, he's kind of looking a little pensive. Um, uh, I, I call this one is something wrong. Uh huh. <laughs> and then <laughs> when we get to the, to the next image <laughs> where, <laughs> where, where the blimp is, uh, it's now close to the ground and it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's on, you know, it's, it's no longer out of the water. It's on the beach uh-huh. and the guy is, <laughs> and the guy's running. <laughs> I just call this one shit. Yep. Uh, <laughs> there's also a reenactment with um, uh, an older woman who, this is was funny to me because oh, it, yeah. somebody had to direct her as to what was happening. The reenact the reenactor. And uh, it was a reenactment of a woman who sees the sky darkening immediately over her house as the blimp approaches. Yeah. And then the camera pans with her listening to it drag across her roof. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, I just thought that was really funny (laughs) that they actually reenacted that bit, which was just easy because it was the interior of a home. It was just darkening the room and then having this woman look overhead you know it was very like alien invasion kind of stuff it was fun that was a fun it, one it was i enjoyed that this, a lot. this whole segment was a lot of a lot of fun with blimps i mean i think there's something kind of inherently funny like a blimp <laughs> is a good co- is like a comedy mode of transportation yeah you know? actually i i would i would i would agree with that like it's like it's it's up there with like the uh, Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. It's like a comedy, <laughs> a, a very funny way to get around, I guess. Yeah, blimp. yeah. Well, yeah. I no, you're absolutely spot on. Like if if I saw the same person piloting a blimp, and then this, uh, and then the same person piloting a you know a plane. I would be more inclined to take them seriously if I saw them in the plane than in the blimp. Yeah. A blimp is a very silly craft. <laughs> yes. Uh, unless it's unless it's the Hindenburg. <laughs> that wasn't that funny. You're right. That was yeah. not a funny blimp Too Too incident. soon? <laughs> too soon. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, Robbie, what's it? So they recover the blimp. The military recovers the blimp, and then what mm-hmm. happens to it? Well, at the very end of the segment, I guess because you know there's not really an update or uh-huh. a way you can really make a call to action. No, uh, those guys just are disappeared forever. Yeah, yeah the uh, stack gives us the background that the the blimp was repaired and put back into action, and then it eventually found its ha- way into the hands of Goodyear. Uh-huh. And if you ever attended a sporting event back in the 70s. Yeah, in the 60s or 70s. 
you uh mm-hmm. you might have seen the Goodyear blimp flying overhead and that yeah. was that was the ghost blimp. Yep. And That's interestingly fu- Stack is doing his uh you know his bit in front uh, not of this Goodyear blimp but of a Goodyear blimp. He's in a big hangar with the blimp. I I'm assuming there must be some hangar down in the Los Angeles area that had I assume I've seen yeah. it around for games and stuff, but like, oh, okay. Um, I think, listen, if anyone was playing a drinking game where they drank every time we said blimp in this segment, I think they'd be pretty, pretty toasty by now. Uh, Robbie, do you, what do you think happened to these guys? You think they just fell out? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, when I was watching this segment again, cause I've seen this uh, segment several times in the past cause it was on, uh, a DVD I had, um, and I felt like, cause cause we get like the three you know three sort of different scenarios. One is mm. you know they were captured by the Japanese. The next the other is that they one killed the other in a love triangle and fled. And then the the third being they had some sort of mechanical issue and they both ended up getting uh, getting uh, dropping out of the the craft. I could have sworn that my my recollection was that there was a another scenario where they're just like, or maybe they just decided to jump out, and then just shows like the two of them just very monotonously, you know, like just devoid of any sort of emotion or or whatever, just both just just walking out yeah. of the the the. the the, the little uh, uh, compartment and falling out but yeah. I guess I guess that was just my my twisted imagination it's possible they could have been captured but probably the the most likely explanation is there was some sort of uh, issue with the blimp mm. um, mechanical issue or whatever and somehow they both ended up uh, out out of the out of the compartment, it seemed like it was uh, exceedingly easy to just open that door, which had me feeling a little unnerved. Um, uh, I must be kind of like flying around in that thing while fun probably is is kind of you might might feel a little insecure as well. <laughs> I I'm sorry, I'm still laughing about just this wild blimp just unleashed uh, and terrorizing Daly City in the 1940s. <laughs> That poor guy just wanted to go for a swim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, well, we gotta we gotta get this uh we gotta get this blimp back up in the air. We gotta talk about some shit I don't want to talk about. <laughs> Be quite oh honest boy. with you. <laughs> for this seg segment, um, I'm gonna p- put a little trigger warning. Um. And, and which is to say in the sense that we never really get into detail about a sexual assault or anything on the show as a matter of course um if you want to fast forward like 10 minutes we'll be we'll be done talking about this 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 piece of shit um mm-hmm. <laughs> within 10 minutes because i don't want to spend that much time on this jerk off all right uh so <laughs> uh in the 1970s in danbury connecticut there was a firefighter uh, named Reggie De Palma, and he was a very respected person in the community. So much so that he started 
a um ex- a local explorers post. I don't Robbie, do you know what kind of organization Explorers Post is? Uh well well I it was my understanding that like very uh, scouts do explorer stuff. Am I just imagining that? I thought I thought that was like an activity that the scouts did, right? Right. I, this seems to be more of a co-ed situation because it's because uh, their their club, their after school explorers post had fifteen girls and ten boys in it by nineteen eighty one. Yeah. So maybe this was just like a co-ed thing. Mm-hmm. Um. They the kids hung around at the fire station a lot and they learned first aid. Yada yada yada. Um, so, I mean, basically I'm going to break this whole thing down. This guy, Reggie De Palma and his girlfriend were using this as a way to groom, um, young girls, uh, for their, you know, things that they yeah. wanted to do to them and et cetera, et cetera. Um, what thing I do want to focus on that isn't that is that they're part of the reenactment <laughs> is, um, they're having the setup was at the firehouse. I think they were having a hosting a haunted house. The Explorers Post Club was hosting a haunted house to raise money for the camping trip they wanted to go on. Something like that, yeah. And at least in the reenactment, the there was no no dollars spared on the lighting effects for this haunted house. <laughs> I mean, this was a pretty impressive haunted house at the fire station. And it oh, made me wonder, yeah. you know, how much money did they put into the haunted house and how expensive was this camping trip supposed to be? <laughs> are, you, are you suggesting that perhaps they could have simply taken the funds they spent to do the haunted house? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. <laughs> spent them on the camping trip. Uh, that's not an invalid point because I'm when uh, when I... When I watch when when you watch that segment, uh, it is an elaborate haunted house. They got all the different colored lighting. The, yeah, I mean, there's like this, smoke. Yeah, like unsolved mysteries sometimes is. I mean, you know, they have to cheaply portray some stuff. Um, I just wonder, maybe they they skimped on the on a few few things. I mean, maybe this is why we don't get the epic blimp crash other than the fact that it'd just be more expensive than an, an entire season of Unsolved Mysteries, but um, uh, uh, is, you know, they, they, they had to save all the money up for this 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 Halloween yeah. set. And it is, yeah. fu- it is fun. Like... Yeah, it's a fun haunted house, but it just made me wonder, like, what, what was the cost of the camping trip that necessitated <laughs> this level of haunted house? It must have been pretty extensive. Yeah. Why, why are they going camping either? I thought they were supposed to be uh, practicing to be firefighters or whatever. I don't know. Well, they're in the Explorers Post. I don't know. I guess that's part yeah. of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't yeah. know what this club is. Um, <laughs> so the long and short of it is uh, Reggie and his, uh, with the help of his girlfriend, Connie, um, abused uh, a lot of the young women. Um, at some point, um, the young women get together. Uh, you know, they're 13, 14 year old girls. Um, they, I'm saying young women, they are girls, they are children. There's, I don't even want to argue that point with anyone. Okay. So they realize they all, the same thing has happened to them from Reggie to Palma and they start talking and then they, then they go to the police with their parents. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And what ends up happening is, uh, you know, this female cop takes on the case and she's, you know, raging mad that she, you know, is going to nail this guy's dick to the wall as it should be. And uh, they have a trial and uh, this guy, you know, Reggie sort of was under the impression that he would still have some sway over these girls that they would, you know, sitting there in the courtroom across from him, they would chicken out. Right. Because he had told them not to say anything. And then, you know, all this other stuff, all the usual bullshit that fucking abusers say. And all the girls testified, three of them. Yeah. Um, He was out on bail, though, during the trial. And on the fifth day of the trial, he decided to go visit his mother who was sick in the hospital in a a neighboring town in Connecticut. And um, he was never seen again. So this is a wanted segment. And we were looking for this guy. Now, most of these crimes occurred in the early 1980s. Um, He's been missing, I guess, for... Something like uh, he was missing for 17 years and they f- and the law finally caught up with him in the year 2000. So this this segment aired in 1993, seven years later. We get a little white text update. That's how we know that. And I'm reading the wiki now. And the reason we get a white text update um, on this, obviously, in the summer of the year 2000, Unsolved Mysteries was no longer in the air. But also because it was an America's Most Wanted viewer. Because there was a segment, America's Most Wanted, that, that tipped off the FBI to where this guy was living. So he was living, he, had, he, had, he was living with a wife and four kids using an alias. Um, uh, he was taken back to Connecticut and he was sentenced to 21 years in prison. Um, and nice. he's and he was released uh, in 2014. So if that he only served 14 years of a 21 year sentence, um, but you know, as of 2015, he was registered as a sex offender in the state of Connecticut. So I don't was justice done there? Probably not. But fuck that guy. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right, Robbie. Quickly as we can, do you want to talk about another? Like this episode starts is so fun with the blimp, and then it just yeah, it becomes ah, a real downer. Jesus. Yeah, it gets this last <sighs> segment was a real bummer too. And this one's kind of interesting because it it starts out and stacks like uh, people who watch the show may may have noticed over the years we've uh, we've done uh, uh, final appeals. Dramatic yeah. profiles of women, men and women who claim they have been wrongfully convicted of a crime. And we kind of get some, uh, um, they show some of the, uh, some of the, uh, more famous of the final appeals. There's the Stallings family, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the ones who were accused of, uh, killing their, their son. Mm-hmm. And then of course we, we also get, um, <laughs> Tony Miller. <laughs> Uh, everyone's mm-hmm. fa- favorite uh, uh, wrongfully imprisoned musician. Um, uh, we just had him on a episode a few weeks ago, where Unsolved Mysteries, you know, committed the the true crime of making some really poor decisions on who they cast to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that People was a big yikes moment. Unsolved oh, Mysteries. <laughs> oh boy. Um. Anyway. So this particular final appeal 
is about uh, is for an individual named Michael Self, who is accused, uh, who, who was uh, convicted of um, for the murder of uh, two two girls, uh, and what we get is a this the segments it, get this uh, this reenactment of uh, I guess uh, you say the Bayou, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where these two guys are in a canoe. <laughs> yeah, these two. There's like teen boys or something. Yeah. Yeah, you know they're 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 paddling along and they see I guess what they thought was a ball in the, the yeah, water. Yeah, like, one of the kids is like, "Hey, is that a ball?" And they paddle over to it. <laughs> and then the reenactment, he's like, he he excitedly picks it up, sort of rotates it in place, and discovers it's a skull. Yeah. And, I don't know how it played out in real life, but in the reenactment, he like drops it back into the water and they they rush to get out of there. Um, But uh, unfortunately, uh, this uh, the skull um, is connected to the uh, the deaths of uh, two gals. Um, The person who was convicted of this was a guy named Michael Self. Um, the local, uh, was it what Webster city? Is that the name of the place? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. The, the, lo- the, the local, uh, uh, towns, uh, c- uh, cops are trying to, you know, figure out who, who did this, who was responsible for, uh, Ron, God, what were the names? Rhonda and, um, Alyssa, no, Sharon. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um and uh Michael self they they have this reenactment of them driving up cuz Michael works at a gas station. They have this reenactment of them driving up to the pumps and Michael walks out of the garage. I I I don't know if this was meant to imply that the station was full service or not um or if he just back then probably yeah yeah and the the one cop he starts out uh by saying hey mike you got esp and they kind of mention in the segment they're very delicate and uh suggesting that mike's mental capacity is not necessarily conventional yeah, he's he's limited. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Mike. Uh, Mike at first is sort of just uh, like, huh? What do you? What do you? Uh, uh, you know, he's sort of just perplexed, and uh, the the cops like, I can tell you're thinking about two girls right now, and in the reenactment, the reenactor, I think he gets it spot on mm-hmm. uh with his kind of the, the reaction he gives which is the sort of reaction that you most men would give if another man was like i bet you're thinking of two girls right now and he kind of gets a little bashful it's like yeah 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 <laughs> Gosh, and then michael yeah. was like i thought he was talking about my ex-wife and then also <laughs> the woman he was dating at the time and yeah, perfectly. How reasonable. would he have known all of that? Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't I know. Don't if know. They... Like the, this cop is dumb too, though. 
<laughs> right, right. Uh, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. So Michael voluntarily comes into the police station. They start out kind of conventional. They show him like they mm-hmm. show him some pictures, and he's like, "Do you know these girls?" And he's like, "Yeah, that's uh, Sharon and uh, you know um, Rhonda." Yeah, you know the thing is they had been missing for or they had been dead for ten. No, wait, hold on. For a while, um, there was there was pressure to. They had been missing for for a while, and then it was because uh, there was it was probably public knowledge too that they were being looked for because one of them was the granddaughter of a city council member. So there was a lot of pressure to find who did it, but also there was probably a lot of publicity around them being missing. And let's assume Michael picked up any local paper in the preceding five months. Just heard people talking he about recognized, it. Yeah, yeah, he would have recognized yeah. them. If was shown a picture, yeah. sure, anyone would have. They would have been like, "Oh, those are the two missing girls." Yeah, I know, I know who they are. Well, it turns out that was the wrong answer because they then immediately cuff yeah. him and take him into the back. Yeah, they arrest him on that. <laughs> yeah. Um. Cool, great, great police work, guys. <laughs> find the find the patsy and call it a day. They take him in the back. The uh, was it the chief is. Um, you know, he's really laying it hard on like, hey, you got to confess. And I guess they, they say he basically yeah. like hits him with his nightstick. Right. Right in the, yeah. the, the abdomen. Yeah, he repeatedly hits him with his nightstick. They, he, there's a very slow, re- again, this episode was really long and painfully detailed in some of these <laughs> things. But yeah, the uh, cop plays a little game of Russian roulette with, uh, with uh, Michael Self. Yeah. And, uh, you know, coerces a confession out of him. Although, and we get we get a lot of this information, not only from Michael, but we get it from another cop. Right. That had that had been that had been in the confession room, not during the intimidation portion, but at least for the confession Mm -hmm. being written. And the cop is the one that says they took his first confession and threw it away because he wasn't getting the details right. Yeah. And so then they they went through a couple of versions of that. Michael signs off on a confession. And then realizing the cops have been so sloppy as to as to they didn't get any of the details right when they were telling Michael what to say. They have self do a second confession mm-hmm. because the first confession, Michael didn't identify correctly where the bodies had been left or had the method of killing them or anything like that. So they were like, oh, the cops were like, oh, shit. And so they go back and they, you know, intimidate him into a second confession, um, which doesn't add up with the first one at all. Uh, Again, and it doesn't add up with the facts of the crime, which were not public knowledge. So it's just it's just the thinnest of evidence. You know? I, I, I like how when they're in, one of the people they interview is the prosecuting attor- attorney from this case. <laughs> oh my god this who's like hey you know if they bring me three confessions and they all say the different thing then i'll just take the one that says the stuff that that yeah. i need to convict the guy and that, uh, it's all good <laughs> yeah because this guy yeah and then he later tries to retcon saying well you know if we could go back and do a better job maybe we would have done a better job i don't That's know a- 
It's not like a life's a, a guy's life hangs in the balance yeah. or anything. <laughs> Just his casualness was so shitty. It was. You know? I, this guy's more interested in eating lunch than like, you know, doing any due diligence for anyone. Mm-hmm. Come on now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So all of this said, so self ends up getting tried. He goes to jail, right? He's been, he's in jail. This is the final. Yeah. Deal. We know that he's convicted. Um, so what happens with the two cops though? Don Morris and Tommy. <laughs> yeah. Dick? Well, they get arrested for bank robbery. It turns out that they've been uh-huh. robbing banks for a while. It definitely calls to the question whether they're on the up and up. <laughs> I mean, already. So then we already have another DA stepping in and saying this this needs to be retried. And and some and then that you know. at some point the some chief of some sheriff somewhere just like he visits Michael in jail. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm not sure what the jurisdictional. Yeah. I'm not sure either, but there's there's another cop that comes in and um, here's the story about Tommy Deal and and Don Morris from Michael about being intimidated with Russian roulette and all that. And he knows that it's true because this cop had seen them do that to another suspect. Yes. And uh, and the re- and so he, he knows that the confession was coerced. So you have like. Two co- one cop that was in the room when the confession was being written saying this wasn't right. You have another cop from another jurisdiction coming in and saying after he talks to Michael, this isn't right. You have another DA coming in and saying like, none of this adds up. Mm-hmm. And also, finally, there's someone in, who in 1980 in Taylor Lake, Texas, a man comes in and fully confesses to the murders of Rhonda and, Sh- Rhonda and Sharon. Yeah. Um, and he... He had some, it was vague, but he had some specific details that were not public knowledge about how it was Mm -hmm. done. I'm mentioning a black cord. And so, you know, sadly, and again, we go back to that shitty DA that had tried uh, Michael Self saying like, well, this other confession, who knows? (laughs) I mean, these confessions over here from Michael that were coerced are fine. But this other one where this guy just walks, this guy just likes to confess (laughs) to crimes. He's not well. (laughs) Like is that a thing that people do? I mean, for attention, it's just confess to crimes they didn't oh, commit. I, I imagine there's probably there's gotta be some examples somewhere, but uh, I can't imagine it's prolific enough for this guy to this prosecuting attorney to just you know like completely dismiss the idea out of hand. Yeah. So so what ends up happening here? This is the final appeal, right? I think this is pretty clear. Because this is a tale as old as time. Just find the find an idiot, put the put the crime on him. Case closed. We did our job. Yeah. Right. Like, you know. So this is the wildest thing, though. There was all this evidence that there was coercion. The two cops that solicited these, I don't know what they're calling confessions, um, solicited these confessions end up being in jail themselves. The conviction gets upheld. Uh, 1992, self is denied parole. In 1993, the case makes it, uh, the appeal makes it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and they refuse to consider his request for a new trial. And then what? what's the update? Um, unfortunately, Michael Self passed away in prison at the age of 53. So if he was innocent... So, you know, when you're, when this DA, who's also probably dead, hopefully, <laughs> at this point, 
um because he choked on a fucking ham sandwich or whatever um you know this isn't just like well we just go with what we got here this is somebody's life you dorks like what are you doing jesus christ like i'm sorry I got really yeah no that that <laughs> this segment that's I was like cute, cute what attorney. Yeah. happened here he, like w- like tell me justice our justice system isn't completely broken when you look at something like this and this isn't even like can't, we can't even say racism this dude is white <laughs> like this isn't even a racism this is just broken yeah this is just a broken system you know yeah ugh disgusting anyway robbie if people want to get in touch with us <laughs> should they do that go go to to, to facebook reenacted fans podcast uh twitter at reenacted pod uh send us an email reenacted pod at gmail.com go on the itunes and leave us a five-star review and let us know what you think of the pod and uh if you include uh your name or or whatnot we can you'll be entered in for uh, a chance to win a special prize. Yeah, we're trying to get to 90 reviews, and then we'll do a random drawing. Yes. And we get to 90 reviews on iTunes, so. And. We haven't quite, we're yeah. almost there. Oh, okay. I haven't quite made it yet. And if you swing by um, Patreon. Yeah, leave us a tip. Help us, help us, uh, this, we don't, uh, this isn't free to make, even though it might seem like it. <laughs> So any little bit helps if you go to patreon.com slash reenacted pod. Um, you can leave us a tip. Uh, we have a $1 tier where you can just say, hey, guys, good job. And then we have a $5 tier where we actually you get some special content. And um, sometimes Robbie sends yes. you things. Um, so, uh, Robbie, do you want to wrap up number 100 in only the way that you can? Join us next week. For another edition of Unsolved Mysteries.